Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome, everyone, to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and we're here. Melvin Van Peebles, part five. I don't know how I ended up starting this podcast with two five-part series. That was really not the intention. Uh, And I, I will be doing more short subjects in the future, I swear. But honestly... I am having so much fun, and I really hope that you are too. Now, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind you that if you haven't already, please give us a rating and review on whichever podcasting app you use. You can now do episode responses on Spotify, which I, as the creator, can then make public, which is a great way to help promote the show. And if you leave a review and then send me proof via screenshot, you will be entered to win one of our brand new Behind the Slate t-shirts. Yes! After getting several requests to make some merch, I have finally gotten around to it, and we now have t-shirts, hoodies, pullovers, tank tops, and baby onesies available through our store on Cotton Bureau. And these aren't just any boxy, uncomfortable shirts that you can get on any merch website. Cotton Bureau makes all their clothes on high-quality, soft cotton. I have a few of their items already, and everything is super comfortable. It fits great and is held up wash after wash. We've got men's and women's sizes in a wide variety of colors, so check out the link in the show notes or over on Instagram at Behind the Slate Pod. So without further ado, let's get back into our story. Now, when we last left off, Melvin Van Peebles had just become a cultural lightning rod, garnering praise and criticism for his revolutionary indie masterpiece, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which basically changed the face of American entertainment forever. Where's Sweetback? I'm looking for myself. No, I haven't, Jim. Never heard of him. What what else do we go by? Come on and cook with me. Yeah, yeah. But while Sweetback was still breaking box office records in cinema after cinema, Van Peebles was already shattering his next glass ceiling, Broadway. Now you might be asking yourself, how is this possible? I mean, did this guy ever sleep? How was he able to do this so quickly? I had that question too. And to answer it, we're going to need to take a brief detour and meet some incredible artists who, although not as well known as Melvin, provided significant contributions to theater and African-American art. Gilbert Moses was originally born in Cleveland, Ohio. As a child, he acted in the Karamu House, the oldest continually operating African-American theater in the country that has been active since 1915. He went on to study at Oberlin College and spend a year in Paris at the Sorbonne University, but ultimately dropped out to join the Civil Rights Movement and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. 
1963, Moses, along with SNCC members Denise Nicholas, Doris Derby, and John O'Neill, founded the Free Southern Theater in Jackson, Mississippi, with the goal of bringing high-quality theater to African Americans across the South with no cost of admission. Now, this multiracial theater company relied on wealthy donors, and they mounted acclaimed productions. After several years, they began to gain national attention. But this press led to a shift in their audience from predominantly black to majority white. Feeling that this was a corruption of their intended purpose, while also being influenced by the greater black power movement within SNCC, the Free Southern Theater expelled all their white actors and board members. This decision was criticized by many of their northern financial backers, and the theater faced even harsher financial constraints. Moses left the company soon thereafter. He made his way to New York City, and after several years working as a guitarist, he was hired to direct Amiri Baraka's one-act play, Slave Ship, an experimental theater piece that depicted Africans below deck during the horrific Middle Passage. This acclaimed production, for which Moses co-set designed and co-wrote the music for, was staged three times in New York City in 1969 and toured across Europe. He won an Obie Award for his direction and became the new up-and-coming black director on the New York theater scene. But while Gilbert Moses was finding notoriety on New York's theatrical edges, Charles Blackwell was working his way up from the center. Blackwell got into show business as a multi-talented dancer, singer, drummer, and guitarist. He eventually transitioned to the role of stage manager under legendary Broadway producer David Merrick, becoming one of the few, if not the only, black stage manager on Broadway throughout the 1950s and 60s, working shows like Neil Simon's Promises, Promises, and Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George. But by the early 1970s, Blackwell was looking to take the next step in his creative career. All he needed was an idea. And one day, he heard it in the shouting frog-on-crack songs of Melvin Van Peebles. 200 miles south in Washington, D.C., another kind of shouting was echoing down the hallways of Howard University's drama department. It only ended with faculty member Paul Carter Harrison saying, I quit. Harrison was a polymath originally from New York who had earned a master's degree in psychology before moving to Europe to direct for the stage. But in 1968, he returned to the U.S. to join the drama faculty at Howard, teaching students such as Felicia Rashad, Debbie Allen, and Pearl Clegg. However, when Harrison pushed for the historically black research institution to feature only plays from black playwrights for the 1970 school year, his department head refused. They had a huge falling out, and Harrison left, accepting a job across the country teaching drama at Sacramento State College. And it was there, at Sacramento State, that these disparate characters began to come together. Harrison was contacted by Gilbert Moses with a proposition. 
Moses had been talking with Charles Blackwell, who, along with his producing partners, the up-and-coming Manny Eisenberg and Eugene Walsk, was interested in workshopping an exciting and experimental new theater project based on Melvin Van Peebles' first two solo albums, Brer Soul and Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Their hope was this piece might have a good run off-Broadway. In a 2009 interview with playwright and scholar Talvin Wilkes, Paul Carter Harrison says that Gilbert Moses showed up at his office with the two albums and a stack of papers with the written poems. Quote, Gilbert had received from Manny, the producer, these directives. Put the songs together in some kind of way to make a theater piece. I talked to Gilbert about it for about three or four weeks. He said, why don't you do it, Paul? I called Melvin in California, and Melvin said, fine, do it. So from the beginning of the 1970 fall semester, Harrison worked with the students, shaping the characters, arranging the songs, and building the story, which ultimately culminated in the first workshop performance of Ain't Supposed to Die, A Natural Death. Here you come back, finger popping, all toning up, clean as you can be. Now, the first question that I wanted to know was, to what degree was Melvin involved with this creative process? Keep in mind, in August 1970, he was supposedly working from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day in a back room on the Columbia lot, editing Sweetback. To try and find the answer, I was lucky enough to look through Paul Carter Harrison's personal archive, which was donated to Emory University following his death in 2021. Among the documents from this time were the original cast list, the production calendar, the play's cue sheet, as well as a bunch of original student newspapers reviewing the performances, which were held from October 13th through the 22nd. Now, I found no direct references to Melvin's involvement, but I did find two pieces of loose-leaf paper, each with a handwritten song order. What made these interesting was that both sheets, one of which was titled Reading Orders, had the songs in different sequences, and neither sheet had the songs in the order that they would appear in the final version of the show. Also included in the folder was the production script, marked with handwritten lighting cues clearly used for the Sacramento State production. This type script did have the songs in the order of the final play, along with a formal cover page with the heading that read, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death by Melvin Van Peebles, and in the lower right-hand corner, the producer's names and the New York office address. This leads me to believe two things. Number one, Paul Carter Harrison was experimenting with the order of the songs during rehearsals. And two, the producers were careful to ensure that their credit and Van Peebles' credit as sole author were maintained. Harrison went all out on the student production, pushing the cast to fully embody the various characters from the inner city in all their grotesque and sympathetic glory. There were pimps, prostitutes, junkies, criminals, laborers, crooked cops, and the homeless. They inhabited an immersive set built out of rough iron scaffolding with a three-level stage at the back. 
each character had their moment to step forward and speak their innermost truth through Melvin's songs, such as Tenth and Greenwich and Lily Done the Zampuji. Harrison brilliantly tied these disparate monologues together with a macabre throughline. Quote, The play was supposed to be about why it was not possible for black people to die a natural death. It was never meant to be a slice of life, a slice of Negro life on the street. It was never meant to be that. It was showing the configuration of those pieces in a ritual style so you began to see how it overwhelms, and you cannot, as a result, die a natural death. It's entirely possible that Harrison and Van Peebles did speak about this concept, maybe on the phone. In fact, Van Peebles was obsessed with the idea that black men were not allowed to die naturally in America. It motivated his extreme fitness regimen, which included weightlifting and long-distance running, a habit he would maintain well into his 80s. But Paul Carter Harrison made sure that the specter of death hung over the performance like a shroud. Journalist William C. Glacken captured the effect in his review for the Sacramento Bee. Quote, Harrison's staging of the show, it seems to me, is the secret of its success. When you walk into the theater, the band is playing in a pit in the flooring, sharing the space with a coffin with an open lid displaying a simulated corpse, whose death, judging by the heavy scars on his face, was probably not natural. Presently, the actors come on in a mockery of an old funeral parade. A cute streetwalker in a blonde wig tearfully tells the corpse over and over, I tried to tell you. A dancer pleads with her cool, contemptuous lover, Baby, I'm the one who loves you. A girl says to a white cop, Take your hands off me, man, and threatens to jump off a window ledge. Another girl in a blue pantsuit turns out not to be a girl after all, and keeps saying, Sometimes I feel so superfluous all alone. A fellow in an old military coat buys a revolver from a man in a white mask. A drunk pleads with the audience, lay a little change on me. I ain't one of them dope addicts. You ever see a junkie as old as me? Gradually, the vignettes become tougher as this apparently random material is shaping itself toward a climax. A man is hanged in jail. The sheet that hides his body becomes a movie screen showing a prize fight between a black man and a white man. The black cop and white cop take turns brutalizing the streetwalker. A young man broodingly rubs a gun back and forth across his palm before the corpse. The cops chase him and shoot him. At last, the ragwoman, who has been meandering around, picking up clothes and watching all these goings-on, explodes. Marching around the audience, she tells them, put a curse on you. The arena is empty for a moment, and then the cast filters back to ask a question over and over. Excuse me, buddy, but this ain't America, is it? The end is a mocking, hand-clapping march around, with the audience invited to join in. This is black theater, using the African tradition of a people to express the lifestyle and character of black people in this country today. Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death is a production that breaks new ground at Sacramento State College. The set suggests any ghetto in any city, and the characters move and interreact in a continuous performance that takes place throughout the entire set. Playwright director Paul Carter Harrison has adapted two monologue recordings by Melvin Van Peebles, the creator of the film Watermelon Man. 
dude, I don't know about you, but that play sounds fucking awesome. It's amazing to think that it was only performed six times. For those lucky few who were in the theater, it must have been impossible to imagine that this avant-garde spoken word opera without a main character or plot that showed the harsh reality of black urban life and ended by cursing the audience would ever reach the Sacramento State yearbook, much less Broadway. But according to scholar Dr. Elizabeth Wallman in her 2020 article, How to Dismantle a Theatric Bomb, there were at least three audience members who did. Producers Charles Blackwell, Manny Eisenberg, and Eugene Walsk traveled to Sacramento to watch the performance. And, as reported in local paper The Sacramento Union on November 7th, they already had big plans for Ain't Supposed to Die. Quote, Harrison's adaptation of the recordings will be the first of two productions planned for the albums. The second production is scheduled off-Broadway under the direction of Gil Moses. But five months after the play was performed at Sacramento State, Sweet Sweetback's badass song would open in Detroit and soon become the most talked about film in the nation. The black arts community became subsumed into the Sweetback zeitgeist and Melvin Van Peebles became a household name. Now, I have no source material as to what happened with Ain't Supposed to Die during this time period. All I can do is speculate based on what ultimately happened and how I would think if I was a producer on the show. Basically, I'd say, holy shit, Melvin is blowing up. We might be able to sell this show based on his name alone. We have got to get this property ready for the big time. And in order to do that, they decided to go back to the drawing board, which leads us to yet another groundbreaking African-American theater artist plying his craft outside of the traditional limelight. Douglas Q. Barnett was born in Seattle, Washington in 1931. His mother and father were both artists, athletes, and activists, and they encouraged their son to pursue his gifts and give back to his community. After 18 years of toiling in the U.S. post office, Barnett returned to his childhood love, the theater. And in 1969, he founded Black Arts West, a community theater, dance studio, and art gallery where he would produce and direct over 100 plays, providing countless opportunities to actors, artists, and audience members. Shortly after founding Black Arts West, Barnett traveled to New York City hoping to raise funds. There, he saw Gilbert Moses' production of Slave Ship and contacted the director, hoping Moses would come out to Seattle to lead a workshop. Scheduling conflicts delayed the process, but in spring of 1971, Moses called Barnett and scheduled a workshop to begin in the summer of that year. In a 2001 interview with HistoryLink.org, Barnett recalled, quote, Moses cut the workshop short the first week, returning to New York. Everyone was upset, mostly the actors. In an office conference, he revealed that he would be directing a Broadway show in the fall called Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death by Melvin Van Peebles. He pulled a sheaf of papers from his bag and dumped them on the table. Here it is, man. Just a bunch of poems. Fifteen or twenty, I think. I'm supposed to make a play out of it. 
Van Peebles came to me after I'd obligated to you. Now they want me back in the Apple for auditions, costumes, lighting, and the tech stuff. So I have to split sometimes. But I really see this workshop as an opportunity to find the spine of this thing. Once I do that, I can work out a secondary substructure, storyline, dress it up, you know? Now, who knows how close this is to what Gilbert Moses actually said. This is just Barnett's testimony 30 years after the conversation took place. But the complete absence of any mention of Paul Carter Harrison and his production is notable. And the claim that Moses wanted to use the workshop to find the spine seems somewhat strange considering this work had more or less already been done by Harrison. Now, according to Barnett, Gilbert Moses spent seven weeks workshopping. The presentation was somewhat more polished rather than performing in a thrust stage surrounded by the audience. This production operated within a proscenium, crafting more formalized tableaus rather than an immersive three-dimensional lived-in space. Moses also elected to remove the open coffin from the stage. However, there were noticeable similarities between this version and the one directed by Harrison. There was a multi-level set made of scaffolding, and Lily's Zampuji dance was of similar style and staging. These elements lead me to believe that Moses' production was, at least partially, informed by the production at Sacramento State. Again, there is no mention of any direct involvement from Melvin Van Peebles. At this time, summer of 71, he was traveling across the country as a one-man promoter and distributor for Sweetback, greeting fans at theaters and hanging cheapskate exhibitors out of high-rise windows. Barnett continues, quote, It was a rough seven weeks, but we made it. On a hot, humid night in August 1971, we gave birth to Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Gilbert had molded the poems into a story of street life in the hood, with an eclectic cast of characters. It mirrored perfectly the problems endemic to blacks in America. We gave three free performances for the community, each of which was jam-packed and 100% black. The audience response was nothing less than incredible. It appeared that we had turned the corner in trying to attract a majority black audience. It was now September 1971. Sweet Sweetback's badass song had just reopened in over 150 cinemas across the country. Producer Manny Eisenberg had secured an investment of $150,000, a tiny amount compared to most Broadway musicals, and announced that Melvin Van Peebles' Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death would open at the Ethel Barrymore Theater on October 20th, 1971. The large cast included Albert Hall, Garrett Morris, Beatrice Wind, Joe Fields, Gloria Edwards, Carl Gordon, Minnie Gentry, among others. For the music, they hired acclaimed musical director Harold Wheeler, who not only understood Van Peebles' unconventional song structure, but was able to elicit nuance, accent, and color from the orchestration and performers. The producers hoped that with some good press, Melvin's fame, and a little bit of luck, they would be able to secure a sizable advanced ticket sale, which was essential to the Broadway show's long-term viability. In mid-October, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death held its first previews for press and limited audiences. What they saw was unlike any play that had been staged on Broadway before. 
As the audience entered the theater, the curtain was left open, as if to disregard the pretension of spectacle and open the space for transparent honesty. As the lights dimmed, the orchestra played a full version of the Star-Spangled Banner. Upon the conclusion of the national anthem, a man limps out onto the stage and sings. Just don't make no sense. stage explodes with a vivid ensemble cast. Critic Clayton Riley describes the production, quote, Suddenly, the audience is on the block, inner city bound. For some, it is a journey close to home. For others, it's traveling to foreign soil. Before us, the stage is a cosmos housing a very black magic, a place where an extending mojo, a spell, will be worked on us and is. High above that stage, a huge grotesque white mask glows atop a human body, the hands of which cast down a multicolored array of puppets strings, each string taken up by the living black processional that moves into view below. The figures in this processional speak or let their silences form lyric definitions, registering all the while a ritual passage from joy to sorrow, rage to accommodation. Elizabeth Wallman writes that the show laid bare, quote, the power structures born of white supremacy, which simultaneously plague and become internalized by the poor black underclass. Interconnected vignettes depict underpaid, overworked people whose menial jobs and perpetual disenfranchisement thwart any chance at upward mobility. Moses inserted a brief intermission, with Act Two becoming increasingly dark and violent. A pimp brutalizes a sex worker. Emergency vehicles arrive too late to revive dying community members. A young girl is raped by corrupt cops. A death row inmate recalls a former love before being hanged, and a young boy tries to outrun the police, only to be gunned down in the street. Come on, let's. Come on, run. As he falls, his legs spastically continue to run in a panicked circle, gradually running out of life. Come on, me. 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 
his body lies motionless. As the community watches in numb despair, an old homeless woman who has been wandering across the stage throughout the show comes forward and cradles the young man's lifeless corpse in her arms. She then turns to the audience and says, Put a curse on you! May all of your children end up junkies too! Your mammy tricked by the pound by the This is, I think, maybe one of Van Peebles' best poems. And because the audio on the clip isn't great, I want to make sure you hear the words in full. It goes like this. Put a curse on you. May all your children end up junkies too. Your mammy trick by the pound to buy that ounce. Your young daughters give rich old dudes head in limousines too put a curse on you. Your warriors maimed or on the run. Your sons lag for pennies all night long in the bus depot because they ain't got no place to go and lose too. Put a curse on you. Closest to heaven you go, rum and coke and cocaine, and a jive pusher come cutting your stuff with talcum too. Put a curse on you. Your young folks stomp each other's brains too, cause all that meanness squeezed in them ain't got nothing else to do. Put a curse on you. May the block gobble up your futures too, and them rats come slipping out your trash and sliding into your children's cribs too. Put my curse on you. Gonna fix it so your men folk can't see no beauty in your women folk. So your men folks be boys to the man and to your women folk too. I'm putting a curse on you. May your folks kiss the ass of your enemy's god too. And every time you start getting hip to the old one, let the man lay a new hype on you. Put a curse on you. If you heard that on the stage today in 2023, that shit would hit hard. I should mention, there is currently a Broadway revival of this play in the works. I mean, this is incredibly edgy, in-your-face material. Now, imagine seeing it in 1971, with absolutely no frame of reference for it. There is no pop culture prism through which you already have some idea of what an urban, impoverished, African-American story might look or feel like. There is no rap. There's no Tupac, no Biggie, no N.W.A., no Kendrick Lamar. There's no Do the Right Thing, no Boys in the Hood, no Eddie Murphy, no Richard Pryor, no Chappelle's Show, no Hamilton. George Floyd hadn't even been born yet, and Rodney King was six years old. In 1971, the notion that a white police officer could use their power to assault black Americans was considered unthinkable by many whites. We take for granted these millions of cultural artifacts that have shaped our experience. So try to put yourself in that theater seat in 1971 and have a homeless bag lady cursing you to a life of racialized poverty and violence. This was a raw, shocking contact with a way of life that was almost alien to most of the people in that room. Black newspapers championed the piece. They were joined by a small number of white writers, such as Jack Kroll, who said it was, quote, one of the most brilliant, significant theatrical explosions Broadway has seen in years. And Martin Gottfried, who wrote, quote, 
Melvin Van Peebles has finally done what was lying there, waiting to be done. He has taken the style, the music, the color, the accents, the very spirit of the urban black ghetto existence, and thrown it upon the stage. And he has done it without creating some kind of minstrel show with real black faces that is mainly what Broadway black theater has been. Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death is the black people, and it is magnificent. Clive Barnes of the New York Times was decidedly more hesitant, but at least he had a modicum of self-awareness that the play showed a reality he did not know or understand. Quote, I suspect that this is a fair picture of a 1971 street scene, not, dear friend, where you live, but I suspect that people do, and described going to the play as, quote, a journey to a foreign country. However, the vast majority of white critics were not so self-reflective. They reacted to the show, often in hyperbolic and racist terms. Newsday's George Oppenheimer called it, quote, a compendium of ugliness, violence, tastelessness, and fury. T.E. Calum wrote in Time magazine, quote, in their self-indulgent militancy, black playwrights of Van Peebles' frenzied stamp like to think they are raising welts on the man's conscience. Actually, they are catering to a masochistic mea culpa clack and assorted liberal breastbeaters. Leo Mishkin of the Morning Telegraph called the production, quote, savage. Julius Novick in the Village Voice said it was, quote, a tired collection of old complaints and out-of-context melodrama, notably deficient in power, pathos, wit, humor, imagination, intelligence, and charm. The New York Post's Richard Watts speculated, quote, possibly Mr. Van Peebles simply hates everybody. And Martin Bookspan on the WPIX Evening News called the play, quote, sickening, filled with total and unadulterated hatred of white society. He warned that the show would incite black spectators to riot. As the opening night approached, the production team descended into a panic. The 150,000 reserve had been completely drained, and the negative reviews had scared off Broadway's 90% white audience. Advanced ticket sales amounted to a grand total of $9. I repeat, $9 worth of tickets had been sold. Whispers and muffled laughter spread across the Great White Way as Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death became a laughingstock. Blackwell, Eisenberg, and Walsk had a meeting and made the excruciating decision to post closing notices before the show had even opened. But before they could, Melvin Van Peebles stepped in and finally took an active role with the production. Just like he had done with Sweetback, he disregarded the advice that an artist should never use his or her own money to fund a project. He padded the production's reserve and guaranteed to cover losses up to $100,000. He explains in a 1995 interview. People say, well, how can, you, how can you use your money like that? It's not my money. It's the money I was able to bring from the community as a whole, and then I was in custody of that money. 
Melvin moved into the production office and took over all aspects of the business. He worked in marathon stretches, often sleeping on the office couch for nights on end. His first action was to protect the cast and galvanize morale. In a company memo, he and Gilbert Moses wrote, quote, Many of the reviews show that not only are the critics patronizing and racist, but stupid. We need to build our own audience, set up our own systems, independent of the white society. Melvin and the producers waived their weekly fees. He organized a team of sales reps with the goal of contacting every black church, school, fraternal order, civil rights organization, and social club within 200 miles of Manhattan, soliciting orders for blocks of tickets with flexible pricing. Due to the controversy surrounding Sweetback, Melvin's name had actually become a deterrent for many middle-class African Americans. So Melvin enlisted the help of Ozzie Davis to work as an emissary for the show. Ain't Supposed to Die opened as scheduled and was met with a standing ovation. Night after night, Van Peebles himself greeted audience members in the lobby. Curtains would routinely be held as audience members unfamiliar with Broadway theaters routinely arrived 20 minutes after the scheduled start time. Van Peebles and the other producers would often end up babysitting a crowd of young children as their parents enjoyed the show. For two months, they hustled, begged, and bribed to find their audience. They even arranged for busloads of prisoners from Rikers Island to attend performances. You did not have good audiences after the first night, which was mostly a black audience, I understand, and gave you, uh, I understand, a thunderous ovation. But you did survive the next few months. Then black people started coming to see it. How, how did that all take place? Well, you see, we don't have a tradition of going to the theater because the theater, um, until very recently, had um, nothing really to offer us any more than most of the other media, but they were so accessible you had to go somewhere. It's only as the word spread that um, the pieces that I do were for us, about us, talking um, really in our, our, our true voices that uh, people began to come in. And every two came in, they bring back four and five and, and built up a whole, uh, a whole black audience. Forty percent of the people who've been coming to my work have never been inside a theater before. The New York Times wrote a detailed description of the show's unconventional qualities. Quote, For a Wednesday matinee, it is 2.10 and the theater is almost completely empty. The curtain is being held. A bus caravan is due and it is late. Van Peebles casually settles himself in the back row. Nobody seems impatient. Suddenly, the buses arrive and young people, all of them black, walk down the aisle, snapping their fingers, looking shiftily from side to side. They sit down, almost filling the entire orchestra. These are kids who have never been in the theater before, says Van Peebles. At 2.17, the house lights go down, the stage lights go on. The play begins with just don't make no sense. Van Peebles talks on the telephone to his sound engineer. Bring the two back speakers up. Give me some more on the right. He adjusts his sound until he has it exactly as he wants. After the show, in a small dressing room high above the theater, Van Peebles sits at a dressing table and says, People assume I'm trying to copy tradition and make a bad copy. Different, when it happens to come from black Americans, is not considered different. It's considered a mistake. If I was from Pakistan or China, they would say, maybe there's something that we don't know. Maybe he's expressing something indigenous to his culture. 
Every week, the white Broadway world watched with incredulous speculation, wondering when this different type of play would finally burn itself out. And yet, Ain't Supposed to Die just kept on living. By late December, the production was breaking even, bringing in $24,000 a week from an audience that was, by the producer's estimation, 70% black. Black leaders and celebrities championed the opportunities created by the production that employed not only black performers, but black stage managers, wardrobe mistresses, costume designers, and technicians. Bill Cosby said, quote, Hundreds of black people are getting jobs because of Melvin's steel-like arms pushing doors open that were never opened before. In January, the show moved from the Barrymore to the Ambassador. Melvin declared January, Black Solidarity Behind Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death Month. <laughs> Just rolls right off the tongue. He invited celebrities like Bill Cosby, Ozzie Davis, Nipsey Russell, and Diana Sands to appear in the show. Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm led multiple talkbacks after performances, and on January 2nd, while sitting next to Ozzie Davis on a battered automobile that was a part of the set, she announced, quote, I dare run for the presidency, becoming the first African-American presidential candidate in U.S. history. Gradually, the Broadway establishment began to take notice that something truly unique was happening here. New York Times theater critic Clive Barnes re-reviewed the play and admitted that the first time he saw it, he, quote, missed it. African-American critic Clayton Riley wrote in an op-ed, quote, Those white critics who were offended by the show failed to mention that no call for whites to feel guilty is ever made in it. What I think confounded many reviewers was that Van Peebles has written a show in which the players, all of them black, express themselves in deeply moved and moving terms to other black people. Some white critics seem to have the continuing and rather paranoid impression toward any expression of love that does not mention an expression of hatred toward them, which is, finally, a very sad comment on the state of their emotional health. When asked about his marketing strategy and how the show continued to stay afloat despite minimal advanced ticket sales, Melvin said, quote, Many of the tickets to Ain't Supposed to Die were sold the night of the performance. Joan Baez will sell out three months in advance. James Brown will sell 40 to 60% of his tickets the night of the concert, but he will still sell out. He shook off the notion that Broadway tickets were too expensive for black audience members. Quote, That's a white liberal syndrome. Do you know what the Shaft record album costs? What the Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight costs? What it costs to go to the Copa? We have the cheapest seats on Broadway. Essentially, Van Peebles had taken the principles of a self-sustaining black theater articulated by people like Amiri Baraka and found a way to employ those principles within the capitalist system. Just like he had already done with Sweet Sweetback, he demonstrated the market power of black art and black audiences. The longer Ain't Supposed to Die went on, the more white audiences became intrigued. 
Their arrival brought some drama into the crowd. White audience members would sometimes look for their seats only to find them occupied by black patrons, unaccustomed to the assigned seating of a Broadway house. At the top of the show, when the national anthem was played, many white audience members would awkwardly stand and remove their hats, while most black audience members would remain seated. Eugene Walsk said, quote, Melvin is in a class with John Paul Getty and the Rockefeller family. Some critics think of him as an important and innovative artist. Others think he is at best a mimic and an audience exploiter. There may be other people who are as good at promoting, but is there anyone else who is also a playwright, composer, director, filmmaker, producer, actor, singer, and novelist? Against all odds, Ain't Supposed to Die ran on Broadway for 10 months. By the time it closed, it had given 325 performances and was the fifth longest running show on Broadway. It eventually recouped its initial investment. However, Melvin did lose about $100,000 of his own money. The play would win three Drama Desk Awards, a Theater World Award, it was nominated for a Grammy, and seven Tonys. At the 1972 Tony Award ceremony, Ain't Supposed to Die staged what has been called the most controversial performance in the history of the show. Over an unprecedented nine-and-a-half-minute performance slot, many of the musical's most shocking scenes were staged, culminating in Put a Curse on You. No show has ever received such a long performance window at the Tonys before or since. But perhaps the most controversial moment during the ceremony lay hidden in the introduction by Peter Ustinov. Ain't, su Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death is a series of songs and musical sketches which surround us with the heartbreak and the humor, the frustrations and the lifestyle of the urban black ghetto. In the writing, uh, the book, in other words, the music and the lyrics, they are all the passionate work of one man, Melvin Van Peebles. Credit for the show was given 100% to Melvin Van Peebles. And this, dear friends, is why I believe the history of the show's origins were so incredibly difficult for me to track down. I'm not trying to do some sort of like gotcha reveal to slander Melvin. First of all, he did write all the lyrics and all the music. Second, without his producerial know-how and financial support, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death wouldn't have survived its opening week. But the capitalist system that enabled this piece of art to survive and touch the lives of thousands of people also has a tendency to simplify the story and give power and credit to those that already have it. Melvin was the name people knew, so he's the one that got the acclaim. And the criticism, to be fair. From the perspective of Manny Eisenberg and Charles Blackwell, it makes sense. The show was complicated enough. Why make it more confusing by talking about the multi-stage development process? I mean, we'd have to explain Paul Carter Harrison, and, and his name is like really long to say. And then we'd have to talk about Black Arts West and Douglas Barnett and Gilbert Moses, who just got a Tony nomination, so he shouldn't complain too much. And most of all, if we do credit everybody, do we owe them money? I mean, we're barely surviving as it is. We'd have to pay a lawyer just to ensure the money was distributed equally. That's just like really too 
too much of a headache. So let's just keep it simple. It's Melvin's show. And these type of conversations take place all the time. They go hand in hand with that very same system that allows art to enter into mass distribution. But that was all 50 years ago. And I do personally think that it is wrong that these other artists are not part of the narrative. Paul Carter Harrison and those students at Sacramento State, they created those characters. They arranged the songs and they shaped the story. And that all goes beyond the traditional responsibilities of a director. The few times he is mentioned, it's with awkward and unsatisfying credits. A student newspaper in 1970 wrote that the play was, quote, adapted and directed by Paul Carter Harrison. Adapted from what? On Harrison's Wikipedia page, it says he, quote, helped conceive of the play. However, on the Wikipedia entry for Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, his name isn't even mentioned. The only record I can find of anyone speaking publicly is an original cast member named Sati Jamal, who said in a 2013 interview, quote, By the way, I must admit, and quiet as it was kept, the Ain't concept was originally created and directed by one of my former instructors at Howard University, Professor Paul Carter Harrison. I can find no record of Harrison complaining or trying to claim credit, he does, however, express some disappointment for the changes in the Broadway show. Quote, If anybody's seen it any time, even on Broadway, they missed it, because the play was supposed to be about why it was not possible for black people to die a natural death. When I saw it on Broadway, it became a slice of life. But people were very happy to see the black people on stage on Broadway. They said, oh, it's wonderful, it's terrific. No critical judgment. I like Paul Carter Harrison. Now, Black Arts West founder Douglas Q. Barnett was a little bit more direct when he wrote, quote, Because Gilbert used the workshop to structure the poems and the storyline, we expected a credit in the Broadway production. It didn't happen, but we took pride in the fact that it was born here. Again, it's so strange to me that Barnett seems to have no idea that the Harrison production even took place. Now, despite getting a Tony nomination for Best Director, Gilbert Moses has been similarly forgotten by history, and his name is seldom mentioned with the impact and staging of the Broadway play. And this is just my opinion, but I think Melvin deserves some criticism here. He talks about his mission being to uplift and represent African Americans in his films and music. What I'm trying to do is train or make opportunities for other blacks um, to, to explore wherever their heads lie. So there's, there's a, broader, a broader thing. Um, one of the complaints leveled against Sweetback, it was um, um, all blacks weren't like that. Well, absolutely not. Just like um, any of the 19 segments in um, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death is not blackness in itself. Even the ensemble of all those things do not represent the mirrored facets. Uh, the only thing to do about that is get more brothers and sisters up there where they can um, express where they're coming from and what they know. But is that only so long as the credit all comes back to Melvin? I think that he should have lived up to those principles by uplifting the real black artists that made his show what it was. He could have mentioned them by name. He could have said what their contributions were. I've never heard him say it. And the sad thing is that as amazing of a story as it is to say that 
Melvin Van Peebles went to France and made his own movie and went to Hollywood and made his own movie and went out on his own and made his own movie and went to Broadway and made his own play. The truth is actually a better story. The truth is that a group of some of the most forward-thinking black theater artists came together and collaboratively made the first spoken word proto-rap musical. Together, they had the courage to put the gut-punch honesty of the black American experience on stage for the very first time. And like a relay team, they shepherded this miraculous piece of art from a Sacramento State black box to the Barrymore. Each one of them was critical to that show's success. Charles Blackwell, Manny Eisenberg, Gilbert Moses, Paul Carter Harrison, Douglas Q. Barnett, and Melvin Van Peebles, and probably many others that I'm not even mentioning here. As much as we love stories about genius savants who can do it all, stories of iterative creation are in some ways even more impressive because so much more can go wrong. Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, in my opinion, is a testament to the power of collaboration. And it is my sincere hope that it gets remembered as such. But at the time, before anyone could even think to challenge this narrative, Melvin was already on to his next project. In February 1972, just as Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death had just barely started to eke out a slim margin of profitability, Melvin calls Manny Eisenberg and a TV producer named Jerry Wiseman into his office. He handed each of them a script, and after they flipped through the pages, Melvin asks, So Jerry, is that a film or a play? Jerry says, It's a film. He turns to Manny and says, Manny, is that a film or a play? Manny says, play. Melvin says, you're both right, and explains his plan. What he wanted to do was rehearse this new script as if it was a play, and record the soundtrack to get the music just right. Then, once it was rehearsed, he was going to shoot it as if it was a movie, okay? Are you following? Good. Well, while all this was happening, Manny was going to go prepare the Broadway production and sell the tickets, using the same strategy they had employed with Ain't Supposed to Die. So by the time he was done shooting the movie, Melvin would then return with the actors and open the play, okay? You following? Okay, okay. So the play would open, and Melvin would then edit the film. It shouldn't take too long three to four months tops, and just in time, right as the play needed a boost at the box office, then the film would be released, generating nationwide headlines and more Broadway ticket sales. Boom. Done. Any questions? No. Okay, good. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Okay, one, two, three, ready, and break! I can just imagine Manny and Jerry's faces. I mean, this plan was absolutely crazy. No one had ever simultaneously rehearsed a Broadway production as a film before. No one had ever used a film to prop up a theater show. No black writer had ever had two shows on Broadway at the same time. And no one would be crazy enough to open a play in this era during the slow spring season. And yet, every time Melvin had attempted the impossible, he seemed to come out on top. So why couldn't he do it again? Now, you might be asking yourself... How the hell did Melvin Van Peebles manage to write a second musical in the span of a few months? The answer is, he didn't. 
well, he did write it, just not in that time span. And the backstory to this second Van Peebles play is something I completely missed in part two of the series. And honestly, it took me such a long time to figure it out because almost nobody knows this story. So we have to go back about a decade to the mysterious couple of years after Melvin moved to Paris, but before he started working for the magazine Harakiri. 1961 to 1963. Okay, we know that during this time, Melvin was living in Paris. He was singing on the street for food, learning French, and thinking up his plan to become a French novelist in the hopes of one day earning his French director's card. Well, According to Melvin, at some point, he got hired to work on a documentary. What that documentary was, I have no idea. But the job required him to move to New York City for the summer. I would guess that this was either the summer of 62 or 63. I'm not quite sure. So the documentary production provides him an apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And on one hot summer day, Melvin was hanging out on his stoop, because this was before air conditioning units were widely available, and an older black woman approaches him and asks if she can use his restroom. So he lets her in, and he gets the woman a glass of water. And a few days later, he gets a phone call. It's this woman, and she says... You're here in the city all by yourself, and I'm throwing a party for my niece up in Harlem, and I want you to come. So he did, and Melvin was treated to the warmth, generosity, and love of a Saturday night Harlem party. That night and the feelings he felt left quite an impression on the young man who saw himself as a consummate loner and outsider. I can imagine the discomfort of being homeless in a foreign country while trying to learn the language. And then after decades of racism and isolation and hardship, that party must have felt amazing. So Melvin returns to France and he keeps reflecting on the warmth and generosity of African-American culture. And he comes up with this idea. What if two devils, or as he calls them, imps, named Trinity and Brother David, come to Earth in the hope of earning their bat wings by doing evil deeds. And they decide to fulfill this mission by breaking up a Saturday night Harlem party. However, their efforts are thwarted by the love, joy, passion, and community of the partiers who share their stories of hard luck and longing through gospel songs. Soon, the imps find themselves questioning if a life of evil is all it's cracked up to be. He turned this story into a musical in French, titled Le Fête à Harlem, or The Party in Harlem. And inspired by all the street music he was learning and singing, he wrote all the songs himself. Now, somehow, Melvin got in touch with a fascinating man named Robert Liensoul. Born on a French Caribbean island, St. Barthélemy, Liensoul eventually immigrated to Paris in the 1950s and began working as an actor. In 1954, he founded the Compagnie de Griot, the first theater troupe of black actors in France, with the mission of promoting and developing black theater artists. This company became the first in the world to stage Jean Genet's play, The Blacks. We briefly discussed the American production of that show in part three. 
The Blacks was directed by a man named Roger Blinn, who was already well-established, having directed the original productions of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, Happy Days, and Endgame. How cool is that? Now, I have no idea how, but Melvin meets Lee in Seoul, who agrees to produce La Feta Harlem with Roger Blinn directing. And according to an archived festival program, a performance was given on September 26th, 1964 in Liège, Belgium, as part of the Festival of Young Theatre. That single performance seems to have been the end of the theater version of La Fête. I can find no record of any other performances in France. However, years later, he adapted the story into a novel of the same name. Now, according to the book, The Encyclopedia of Musical Stage Works by, about, or involving African Americans, Bernard L. Peterson writes that La Fête à Harlem was translated into English and performed at San Francisco State College in November 1970. This could very well be the case. Two years prior, San Francisco State students went on strike, and what would be the longest student-led strike in the history of American higher education, which led to the establishment of the nation's first ethnic studies department. However, I have been unable to corroborate the detail of a student production of the play, because that would mean that Melvin had already translated the play into English before 1970. And there are other eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Melvin in 1971 on the phone translating the play with an unknown French woman, most likely ex-girlfriend and editor Jeanine Uvrard. Regardless of when it was translated, in early 1972, once again using his own money, Melvin assembled a cast of actors that included Retta Hughes, Mabel King, Avon Long, Joe Keyes Jr., Joshy Joe Armstead, and Esther Roll, before her breakout success on the TV show Good Times. He once again hired musical director Harold Wheeler, and Charles Blackwell served as producer. Now, he originally wanted to film in Harlem, but due to unknown reasons, he relocated the cast and crew to a small studio in Santa Fe, New Mexico, of all places. And after a three-week rehearsal, they were joined by Sweetback cinematographer Bob Maxwell and his family, and for five weeks, they shot the play as a film. Two days after production wrapped shooting, the cast returned to New York City and began stage rehearsals for Melvin's Broadway directorial debut, Don't Play Us Cheap. Ooh, that's it. That's my song. With its somewhat silly plot and joyful gospel tunes, Don't Play Us Cheap was a departure from the seriousness and violence of Sweetback and Ain't Supposed to Die. To Melvin, 
It was just one more entry to his overall mission to combat the negative imagery of black people that had filled American culture for centuries. Quote, I'm trying to provide them with a sense of self. Look, Jesus Christ was white. Santa Claus was white. Ralph Bunch was white. You never saw anybody that you could say, that's me. You don't realize what that can spark in kids who have never been able to see themselves or never heard their language being talked. This legitimizes them in their own minds. They become somebody. Actually, I see them all and um, don't play as cheap and uh, also included as part of showing black people images of themselves. And uh, it's uh, a little more difficult because we've been portrayed for exploitive purposes by uh, the man in this jolly way. So naturally we're more cautious when you see a, a happy party. But um, you can be happy and have your dignity at the same time, which is one of the other things I, I set out to prove. He later added, quote, I love those Saturday night parties. People love them too, but they feel guilty about loving them. There is a certain inarticulate sense of inferiority many blacks feel about many things very indigenous to them. I don't see any reason for not enjoying your watermelon in white company. For many audience members, his message was received loud and clear. Poet Nikki Giovanni wrote in a touching op-ed about the show, quote, One day, for no other reason than that lemmings march to the sea, you'll fry up a lot of chicken, bake a big batch of biscuits, call all the kids together, pile into the car, and head south, most likely for Alabama. Or maybe, because polar bears burrow under snow to give birth to their young, you'll dig out all your old high school yearbooks and try to remember whatever happened to that immensely wonderful love of yours and that evil old girl who took them away. If you're exceedingly patriotic and a monument is close, you may take a lonely, lonesome walk to view the historic words proclaiming that those dead did not die in vain. We all have our ways of getting back to who we are and what has kept joy a meaningful concept in our lives. If you live in New York, you can go to the Barrymore Theater and see Melvin Van Peebles' Don't Play Us Cheap. The question is, of course, what makes black art black? Which is similar to, though not quite the same, as what makes dirt dirty, sweet taste good, or white art universal. Evidently, what you bring to the product. A paint-covered smock is not soiled by a child's mud-covered hands. A piece of chocolate on an empty stomach can make you sick. A play that honestly presents characters who act in concert with the other characters on stage and not some unseen force can be enjoyed by and enlightening to any person looking for enjoyment and enlightening. Shadows in the dark can be seen and felt and responded to if you recognize the possibility of shadows moving, having their own lives to live. It's our own arrogance that makes us think a shadow is dependent on the light. We are dependent on the light to see the shadow. The shadow is there all the time. Unlike with Ain't Supposed to Die, white critics were quick to celebrate Don't Play Us Cheap. Clive Barnes wrote, quote, it is a rare thing, a black play that doesn't feel the need to mention a white all evening, yet the white audience need feel no more excluded than at a Japanese no play. Mr. Van Peebles is talking to everyone through his blackness without any discernible self-consciousness or hang-ups. 
Tell me, um, I was uh, I made a point earlier about the blackening of Broadway. The same white critics that said they had, quote, mixed reviews about your first play are now saying that Melvin Van Peebles is liberated, that uh, he's able to uh, be pro-black and not anti-white. He's able to say, I love black people with black people without referring yay or nay to white people. Well, that's um, a certain time that it took to sensitize their rear ends to um, where things were headed. Uh, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death got re-reviewed um, along with the reviewing of Don't Play as Cheap. Uh, we will shortly be the sixth longest running play on Broadway. And um, nothing succeeds like success, brother. Ironically, some black writers felt the show was too happy. Jet Magazine went so far as to say the music was not black enough. Melvin said, quote, how would they know? Others, in perhaps an unintentional nod to director Gilbert Moses, noticed the different style between the two shows. Mel Gusso wrote, quote, the artistic quality of these two varies as widely as the style. Ain't Supposed to Die is superbly professional. Don't Play Us Cheap looks as if it was slapped together on the way home from a party. Don't Play Us Cheap ran for 164 performances and garnered two Tony nominations, Melvin's second Tony nomination for Best Book of a Musical. Regardless of whether they liked it or not, no one could deny the immensity of what Melvin had done. During the spring and summer of 1972, he had two musicals running concurrently on Broadway. It's one of the few times in the history of American theater a black writer has had two shows on Broadway at the same time. Melvin was at the top of his game. On August 20th, 1972, he returned to Los Angeles to attend the legendary Watt Stacks concert held at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. The concert, designed to benefit the Watts community and commemorate the 1965 Watts riots, was billed as the sole Woodstock. More than 100,000 people turned out for the show, making it the second largest gathering of African Americans in U.S. history, second only to the 1963 March on Washington. Of the many performers, such as Kim Weston, Rufus Thomas, the Staple Singers, and Isaac Hayes, perhaps the most memorable moment was when a young Jesse Jackson delivered his famous I Am Somebody speech. Today, we are together. We are unified and on one accord. But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. Today on this program you will hear gospel and rhythm and blues and jazz. All those are just labels. We know that music is music. All of our people got a soul. Our experience determines the texture, the taste, and the sound of our soul. We say that we may be in the slum. But the slum is not in us. We may be in prison, but the prison is not in us. In what we have shifted from burn, baby, burn to learn, baby, learn. We have shifted from having a seizure about what the man got to seizing what we need. We have shifted from bed bugs 
and dog kicks to community control and politics. That is why we gather today to celebrate our homecoming and our own sense of somebodyness. That is why I challenge you now to stand together, raise your fists together, and engage in our national black litany. Do it with courage and determination. I am somebody. As he looked out on the crowd, I wonder if the notoriously forward-thinking Melvin allowed himself a moment of reflection. It had been only five years since he showed up as the French delegate to the San Francisco International Film Festival. Since then, his life and career had been in perfect synergy with the changes taking place in American culture. Little did he know that his meteoric rise was at its apex. When we stand together, what time is it? When we say no more yes to both, what time is it? Don't Play Us Cheap closed on Broadway a few months later. Despite finishing the edit of the filmed version, no distributor would partner with him to release the film. After months of promising a nationwide release, the film was shown only once in the U.S. as part of a benefit screening in Atlanta, Georgia. It was technically the first black-directed musical of the modern film era. It was shown once more in 1973, winning first prize at the Belgian International Film Festival. After that, the project was shelved and would not be seen again until the 1990s. In a 1972 New York Times article titled Melvin Van Prolific, Van Peebles discusses his many upcoming films. They include an adaptation of his novel, The True American, an untitled Western, and of course, the promised sequel to Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which Melvin said would be the second in a trilogy of films depicting Sweetback fighting injustice across the Americas. None of these projects ever made it to pre-production. In 1973, Melvin staged a one-man musical review in which he sang from his song catalog. Perhaps in an attempt to make light of his changing fortunes, the show was titled Out There By Your Lonesome. A review of the show in the New York Times ended with this sad line, quote, Unfortunately, the audience Sunday was sparse. Surprisingly so, considering the reputation of the performer, and the high caliber of the performance. After an unprecedented winning streak, Melvin was coming up empty. And I'm left wondering what could account for this sudden reversal of fortune. And while part of me hesitates to wade into these waters, I think the answer is undoubtedly very complicated. Race and racism play a huge role in this. I think Melvin was a very easy target, and him being an outspoken, unapologetic, uncompromising black artist who was willing to criticize white society, it closed a lot of doors right off the bat. And it's really tough to talk about, because if he didn't have these qualities, he wouldn't have gotten as far as he did. He wouldn't have gotten the French grant to make the story of a three-day pass if he wasn't willing to make the French look good and the Americans look bad. 
He wouldn't have gotten the ending of Watermelon Man if he hadn't lied to the studio and only shot it his way. Sweetback would have never revolutionized cinema if Melvin hadn't broken every rule of Hollywood to get it done. The oppressive world of American entertainment necessitated an almost militant business strategy. As Melvin says himself in a 1967 interview, How do you get to go from a grip man on a cable car to a director of an international film? Um, well, you don't pay attention to what people tell you. <laughs> um, of course, if I ask everybody uh, what they thought, well, um, I would have never made it. you got to be evil, baby. That's about the size of it. <laughs> but this being evil is simply not sustainable, even if it was justified by unjust circumstances. You can't go around attacking people and hanging them out of windows and lying to them and only doing things your way and expect to keep working in a highly collaborative field. Too many people get hurt, and it gives the impression that Melvin's ego had outpaced his message. Melvin must have felt the Midas touch leaving him. He now sported a tattoo around his neck, a circle of dots broken on the left side by the French words coupé sur la ligne, cut along the dotted line, and on the right side by the English word cut, which was then crossed out, and above it was printed the word lynch. The tattoo was only seen in its full glory when Melvin pulled down his pants, where on his right buttock were the words knee best, in the West African language Bambara, they translated to, if you can. As the calendar turned to 1974, Melvin appeared on the PBS program Say Brother. On camera, he drank liquor from a bottle and spoke with a weary cynicism. Uh, what are your interests uh, for the future as far as music and film is concerned? Well, my interest for the future is just like my interest for the past, man. Whatever I think can further the consciousness of the disenfranchised third world folks. It, if cinema no longer becomes relevant to the struggle, I ain't gonna make another film. Um, if music for some unforeseeable reason no longer is the, the message or one of the methods uh, of reaching the folks, then I, I'll have to put it down. Um, it does not, the media does not dictate the message, man. The, the need dictates the media. I can only imagine how furious it must have made him to watch the flood of black exploitation films coming from Hollywood. With their cheap budgets and high profits, they used his innovations and the pretense of diverse representation to enrich the very men who had denied it for so long and repackage the same negative stereotypes that Melvin had vowed to destroy. In 1974, Melvin released his fourth studio album titled What the You Mean I Can't Sing on Atlantic Records. Produced by Charles Blackwell and arranged by Harold Wheeler, the album was a departure from Melvin's previous spoken word experiments. Instead, Melvin sang his own version of funk and soul music with humor, pathos, and biting social criticism. Yes, sir. Yes, a boss.
Unfortunately, the album cover, which featured a word bubble of symbols taking place of the word fuck, hurt album sales, and radio stations refused to play the songs. The album languished in obscurity until it was re-released in 2004 to critical acclaim. Articles began to question Melvin's legacy and his talent. To some, his fall from grace proved that he was nothing but a shallow charlatan who had slapped together schlock and pretense and convinced the world that it was art. To others, he had become a pariah, a victim of a modern lynching, warning other black auteurs of what may happen to them if they challenge the system. Even his Broadway success was being reassessed by industry insiders as nothing more than an unprofitable vanity project, a one-man ideological vendetta that left no meaningful impact on the world of theater. In fact, this narrative has proved to be shockingly persistent. In the modern day, Broadway has made great efforts to diversify and appeal to new audiences. And while these efforts are absolutely worth celebrating, they are too often branded as unprecedented and groundbreaking. This unwitting erasure of the past does a great disservice to the man who invented many of these diversifying strategies over 50 years ago. Melvin was painfully aware that his entire legacy was on the line, and without a project to stand on, he was losing control of the narrative. Perhaps he'd become nothing more than a footnote to history, a character, or even worse, a caricature. Maybe 200 years after he was gone, some novelist like William Styron would come along and write The Confessions of Melvin Van Peebles, summing up his life story into one of insecure introspection motivated by an uncontrollable lust for white women. Still, his struggles continued. In 1975, Melvin managed to sell a script titled Just an Old Sweet Song to NBC, who turned it into a made-for-TV movie. Melvin was not allowed to direct the film, but did contribute some of the music. It was a simple story about a family from Detroit taking a two-week vacation to the South. As usual, he adapted it into a novel, which was published but seldom read. The few critics who watched the film wondered how Van Peebles could go from Sweetback to what some called the Black Waltons. Many assumed that Van Peebles had lost his edge. Hoping that a collaboration with an up-and-coming star might help recapture some of the old magic, Melvin approached comedian Richard Pryor about acting in a biopic he wrote called Greased Lightning. It was about Wendell Scott, a black World War II veteran and moonshine runner who became a Dixie Circuit stock car racer and became the first African-American to drive for NASCAR. Pryor, hoping to break into more serious acting roles, signed on to the project and brought on Warner Brothers Studios as a distributor. Soon, Van Peebles had assembled an all-star cast that included Pam Greer, Cleavon Little, Bo Bridges, and Richie Havens. But problems arose between Van Peebles and Warner Brothers, and before long, Melvin was fired from his own movie. In the LA Times, Van Peebles simply stated, quote, My version was more stylized, and they wanted it more naturalistic. He was replaced by Michael Schultz, a mixed-race director who had just delivered two profitable, low-budget comedies, Cooley High and Car Wash. 
The film was actually shot in and around my hometown of Athens, Georgia, but sadly, a group of racist locals did everything they could to ruin the production. They harassed the actors at their hotel and showed up on set whistling and yelling whenever the director yelled action. Despite the racism faced on set and the even more extreme racism present in Wendell Scott's life story, the final product was an unbearably light PG affair. Moments of real racial hatred were played with almost slapstick levity, and Warner Brothers marketed the film as a feel-good movie. This could have been the essential creative differences that forced Melvin out of his own project in the first place. The film was released in 1977 and was a box office failure. Richard Pryor quickly rebounded, garnering critical acclaim in the 1978 Paul Schrader film Blue Collar, while Michael Schultz saw his movie-making career end after directing the misconceived musical interpretation of the Beatles album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, starring Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. It had now been five years since Don't Play Us Cheap closed on Broadway, and Melvin had not released a single major piece of new work. He took solace in his long runs up and down Manhattan's west side and completed several marathons. In 1979, he announced that he had written a new musical with composer Mildred Caden. The show, titled Becky, was an adaptation of the Thackeray novel Vanity Fair, it was set to premiere in London, with Melvin directing and actress Glinda Jackson in the lead role. In a New York Times article, Melvin hoped the show would lead to his luck returning. Quote, I put the deal together. I pulled it off. It's going to be a gigantic show like Evita or Sweeney Todd. You know what that means? It means I'm suddenly, hey, Mel baby again. I like that. The show never made it to rehearsals. In the early 80s, Melvin co-wrote the musical Reggae about the beginnings of the Jamaican music genre. He adapted a book by John A. Williams into a television miniseries titled Sophisticated Gents about a group of black men who had belonged to the same sports club when they were young. He also directed two off-Broadway plays, T. Sarah Legwee's Body Bags and his own musical about jazz singer Bessie Smith titled Champine, both of which received mixed to negative reviews. He was now 50 years old and had endured a decade of frustration and false starts, all in the shadow of his former glory. Perhaps deep down he knew that he needed a change, a challenge, something to spark that old trailblazing curiosity. But where would he find it? One of his closest friends was Dr. Henry Jarecki. Jarecki was a German-born academic, psychiatrist, and entrepreneur. Born only nine months after Melvin, he fled Nazi Germany as a child, eventually immigrating to the United States, where he spent more than a decade teaching psychiatry at Yale Medical School. In the late 1960s, Jarecki made a career shift, becoming involved with the London bullion house Makata and Goldsmith. There, while trading precious metals on the international market, he pioneered the use of computers and started one of the first firms to offer over-the-counter exchange-traded options on futures in American commodity markets. Now, these are complex financial exchanges that I'm not going to go into here. Just know that Dr. Jarecki was a very successful and innovative investor. 
His wife, Gloria, was a film critic at Time magazine, and together they circulated in the Manhattan art world. Jarecki became friends with Melvin Van Peebles sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. But when Van Peebles approached Jarecki about financing his new musical, an autobiographical odyssey called The Waltz of the Stork, Jarecki had doubts about the show. Not wanting to disappoint his friend, he instead turned the business deal into a bet. He bet Melvin that if the play failed to produce a return on his investment, Melvin would have to go work on Wall Street to make up for the losses. Never one to turn down a deal, Melvin agreed, confident that his new play would return Jarecki's money and then some. In 1982, The Waltz of the Stork opened at the New Federal Theater in Manhattan and was universally panned. Frank Rich of the New York Times wrote, quote, The show proves to be a bewildering, almost unwatchable exercise in self-indulgence. This show is so confused and impenetrably private that it isn't ready to play in a living room, let alone a Broadway theater. John Simon of New York Magazine described it as, quote, The most boring, self-serving, and unnecessary play it has ever been my misfortune not to walk out on till intermission. Yikes, that is tough. Needless to say, no profit was made, and after the show closed, Melvin incredulously agreed to take the test required to become a licensed securities trader. Having negotiated countless entertainment deals, Melvin didn't study for the test at all. He was shocked when he opened up his test booklet and realized that the test might as well have been in Chinese. The unique language of finance was completely alien to him. Melvin failed, of course, but his curiosity was piqued. He signed up to be a clerk and, just like he had done in Paris three decades earlier, immersed himself in learning the new language, the language of finance. A month later, he took the test again, and this time, he passed. Impressed by his friend's newfound excitement, Jarecki hired Melvin through his firm, Timber Hill Inc., and in 1983, Melvin Van Peebles arrived at 11 Wall Street as the first black trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The small community of traders had no idea who Melvin was, but his salesman charisma and unique fashion choices soon became the talk of the trading floor. Young black and Hispanic clerks flocked to Van Peebles, who suddenly felt that old excitement returning. Once again, he was breaking down barriers in one of the few remaining frontiers of true desegregation. Melvin thrived as a trader. The job activated his deal-making instincts he had first honed as a child, selling old clothes to winos. Just like he had taught himself music with numbers on a keyboard, he invented his own form of shorthand to keep track of the complex option deals he was negotiating. And his love of math and astronomy that he had discovered in the Air Force meant he could do the calculations all in his head. The trading floor became his new stage upon which he could entertain and astound a new receptive audience. Melvin founded his own trading firm, and in 1986, he released one of the first how-to guidebooks for trading options, titled Bold Money. 
wanting the book to stand on its own merits and not be relegated to the African-American studies section, Melvin insisted that his picture not appear on the cover and be marketed in relative anonymity. His success not only opened the door for many minority traders, but it helped popularize the options market, which now, 40 years later, has become the go-to trading vehicle for Wall Street rebels and financial TikTokers. When interviewed for the LA Times, Melvin said, quote, Wall Street is quite refreshing, the black and white of it. It's a simplistic world. There are no grays in it. The artistic world is one of high nuance. By the time I'm bonkers with the simplicity of trading, then I'm back in the world of emotions and nuance. And by the time I can't take nuance anymore and I'm ready to blow my brains out, then it's time to go back and trade where it's all simple, cut and dried. I find it very, very complimentary, the two worlds. In the Chicago Tribune, he added, quote, If I was just a creator... I would still be back in the Lincoln Annex of the post office. Perhaps it was the affirmation that came with making good money in the stock market. Perhaps it was the way the minority clerks looked up to him. Perhaps it was a sense of proving to himself that he still got it. But it seems to me that this was a turning point in Melvin's life. That hard-edged stoicism from his days in the limelight and the bitterness of his decade in obscurity gave way to a good-humored smile. Rather than demand the spotlight himself, Melvin took more opportunities to share his experience and mentor others. He took a job as a guest commentator on New York City's Channel 5 News, which quickly evolved from Wall Street analysis to humorous yet pointed diatribes against whatever Melvin felt like talking about that day. Tonight, Melvin's going to tackle... Uh, well, he's going to be talking about I'm going to let you figure it out. I have the housing solution. Here goes. Hookers and the homeless. The homeless needs beds, right? A bed is not much when you've got one. Everything when you don't. There are beds, hundreds of them. Little use, relatively speaking. Scattered conveniently all over the city. Rooms of prostitution, cribs. Every hooker should be assigned a homeless person who gets the mattress when she's not using it. Down with the warehousing of beds. Madam should be assigned homeless families of three or four, depending on the brothel size. Okay, you can't stop people from gambling, so you do a lottery. You can't stop people from, well, you know what I mean. If you can't beat them, make them join you. Just like in those science fiction movies, when some extraterrestrial disaster threatens and everybody jams together. Americans, Russians, Chinese, and those ladies or gentlemen or in-betweens of the evening would do their bit gladly, without a fight. Seeing as how they all, everybody knows, have hearts of gold. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm Melvin Van Peebles. Good night. Van Peebles and Jarecki took pleasure in helping each other's children. Mario Van Peebles briefly worked for Jarecki on the commodities markets. And Van Peebles mentored Jarecki's children, Andrew, Eugene, and Nicholas, all of whom would go on to become acclaimed filmmakers. Nicholas Jarecki has written and directed features such as Arbitrage and Crisis. Eugene Jarecki is a two-time Sundance Grand Jury winner with multiple Peabody and Emmy Awards for his films Why We Fight, Reagan, and The House I Live In. 
oldest son, Andrew Jarecki, directed the Sundance Grand Jury winning an Academy Award-nominated documentary Capturing the Freedmans, as well as the Emmy-winning docuseries The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. In a 2006 interview, Eugene Jarecki said, quote, My godfather is Melvin Van Peebles, a pioneering and truly badass media figure who could be instantly inspiring to a young person. He taught me how to make uncompromising choices. Melvin was a mentor in a spiritual sense and gave all of us brothers our first jobs. In a time where to be a reasonable man might be to make Faustian bargains with one's own morality, one's own ethics, an ingredient of social concern was born into us. In 1986, the same year that Bold Money was released in bookstores, Melvin's vision of an independent black cinema finally came to fruition when an unknown NYU film grad's self-produced, self-financed film, She's Gotta Have It, became the most successful independent film from a black director since Sweetback and went on to earn over $7 million at the box office. That director's name was Spike Lee. Lee would, of course, go on to become one of the most prolific and influential filmmakers of his era, but was always quick to give Melvin credit in blazing the trail that he followed. He paid tribute to Melvin in his 1989 documentary, The Making of Do the Right Thing. One of the most important fathers of modern-day black cinema, he calls the revolution, because little guys like me who were 13 and 14 looking at this brother challenged the system said, if he can do it, I can do it. One of my mentors and one of the people who I want y'all to get to know and put together a big round of applause for Melvin Van Peebles. And would immortalize one of Melvin's camera innovations, the double dolly shot used in the bar scene of the story of a three-day pass, by recreating the same effect in almost every single one of his films. In 1987, Van Peebles won a daytime Emmy for his writing of an afternoon special teleplay, The Day They Came to Arrest the Book, about a school embroiled in a fight to censor the book Huckleberry Finn. Throughout the 1980s, Melvin's son Mario had gradually been building a steady career as an actor, scoring a hit role in the 1986 Clint Eastwood film Heartbreak Ridge. Mario wrote a script titled Identity Crisis about a young rapper who ends up sharing his body with the soul of a dead fashion designer and switching between the two personalities each time he is struck on the head. He convinced his dad to direct the film. It was Melvin's first time directing in almost 20 years. The film screened at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, but Van Peebles failed to negotiate a theatrical deal and the movie was released direct-to-video. The father and son duo would go on to write a book together about their experience making the film. The following year, Mario Van Peebles made his directorial debut, directing New Jack City with Wesley Snipes, Ice-T, and Judd Nelson. Following in his father's footsteps, New Jack City went on to become the highest-grossing independent film of 1991. Throughout the 90s, Melvin and Mario continued to work together on films such as Posse, Gang in Blue, and Panther. 
Now an elder statesman, Melvin continued to perform music and act in film, TV, and theater, including Shel Silverstein's one-man adaptation of Hamlet. In 1998, Melvin returned to France, writing and starring in a documentary about the history of African-American representation in Hollywood films called Classified X. In the film's final speech, Melvin pulled no punches in the way the distribution system continued to stymie artists of color. In the last 20 years, the cost of making an independent film has been greatly reduced, and many young filmmakers have seized the opportunity. If we step back a minute to view the era as a whole, we see the trick is no longer getting a film made, but getting it shown. And for now, distribution is in white hands. They are the gatekeepers and rule makers of what reaches the silver screen. For every Spike Lee, John Singleton, Julie Dash, there are many other black filmmakers wilting in the wings, unseen. Every era brings its new tricks. The latest is if a black filmmaker does somehow manage to make a relevant black film like Malcolm X or Panther. The box office receipts are siphoned off at the cineplexes to other more acceptable movies by the racist exhibitors, thereby denying the profitability of such films, plus withholding the fiscal benefits from anyone daring to confront the system. Americans like to go on about money being money, neither black or white, but green. But when the hand holding the money is white, and the head connected to the hand is mired in the same old racist attitudes. It amounts to the same old yassa boss, show enough boss, racist stereotypes. The following year, he shot his own film, Bellyful. It was a project he had been trying to make for 30 years. Filmed on video, it was the story of a French couple masquerading as liberal do-gooders who adopt an African girl in the hopes of hiding their daughter's illegitimate pregnancy, which they suspect will yield a mixed-race child. The film did not receive distribution, and to this day, I cannot track down a copy of it. In 2001, Melvin was honored by the French government by being named a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, the highest French civilian honor. This achievement is immortalized in the U.S. congressional record by one of Melvin's close friends, Vermont Senator Pat Leahy. Leahy spoke of Melvin's accomplishment on the Senate floor as a bright spot of national pride in the dark days following the September 11th attacks. In 2004, Mario Van Peebles wrote, directed, and starred in the film Badass, a dramatic reenactment about the making of Sweet Sweetback's Badass song. The film's release brought renewed attention to Melvin's film work and helped secure the DVD home video release of his films from the 1970s. That same year, Classical Theater of Harlem director Alfred Pricer mounted an acclaimed revival of Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Melvin was intimately involved with the production, supporting the actors and the crew, even running the box office and serving as an usher when needed. He did not ask for any credit. In 2008, at the age of 71, Melvin Van Peebles was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Perhaps feeling a renewed sense of purpose, he adapted his 1982 play, The Waltz of the Stork, into what would become his final film, Confessions of an Ex-Doofus Itchy-Footed Mother. 
He produced, directed, and starred in the low-budget film, which premiered at the 2008 Tribeca Film Festival. But once again, the film did not receive distribution, and to this day, is unavailable. In response to the criticism toward the film, Melvin no longer was bound by the feeling that he had anything to prove. He would simply shrug and smile and say, quote, I do my work like a cook. I do what I like in case I have to eat all alone. He eventually turned this story into a graphic novel, which is available to purchase and is quite charming. In 2011, as the Occupy Wall Street protest grew in size and notoriety, several videos showing footage of the protesters were set to Melvin's 1970 song, Love That's America, off the soundtrack to Watermelon Man. These videos went viral on YouTube, leading to a renewed interest in Melvin's music. On his Facebook page, Melvin voiced his support for the videos and the Occupy movement as a whole, and the song was adopted into an unofficial anthem. Melvin would spend the next decade of his life running, making art in his Manhattan apartment, giving interviews, many of which were critical to the research of this series, staging various plays, including a musical version of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song at the Sans Divers Festival in Paris, he also performed music with his band, Melvin Van Peebles' Wid Laxative. When asked why he chose that name, Melvin would respond, quote, because we make shit happen. In the wake of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, Criterion announced the restoration and re-release of Melvin's four major feature films, The Story of a Three-Day Pass, Watermelon Man, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and Don't Play Us Cheap. But in late September 2021, only a week before this DVD box set was set to be released, Melvin Van Peebles fell ill and was taken to a hospital. His surviving children flew to New York. According to Mario, they were able to take him back to his apartment, his beloved home for over 40 years. And that night, at 2.30 a.m. on September 21st, 2021, Melvin Van Peebles passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family. He was 89 years old. He was laid to rest in a private ceremony, surrounded by family, friends, and loved ones. And in what I think is the ultimate victory in a life of improbable wins, Melvin Van Peebles, the last Renaissance man, who for so long had said he ain't supposed to die a natural death, did. In this series, I have attempted to paint a picture of Melvin Van Peebles as an artist, a cultural figure, and a man. But having reached the end of this story, I can't help but feel that these descriptions somehow fall short of capturing his essence. I find myself thinking of Melvin more like a force of nature, like, like a cyclone, Hurricane Melvin. From inconspicuous beginnings on the other side of the world, a series of ideal conditions, changing currents and winds, created a rotating locus of power centered around one man. Soon, he became a self-sustaining juggernaut barreling toward society that was helpless to stop him. When he made landfall, Millions of people's lives were changed in an instant. 
His power tore down structures of oppression and flooded dams long built to hold back the creativity and freedom of others. Some people were hurt. Some were displaced. No one was untouched. As he moved inland, his power diminished, and those whipping winds of revolution gave way to nurturing rain that fed the rivers and the valleys, ensuring a rich new life for tomorrow and beyond. Well, I think about Melvin, if he was a painter, if he was an artist that painted, he would be not another Salvador Dali. He would probably instruct Salvador Dali. Melvin is an alien. It took me many, many years to do Daughters of the Dust, and I did it, and I, and I got it released. And I remember Melvin once saying, whatever you do, do it better than anyone ever expects you would. Never forgot that. You asked me earlier was, what did I learn from Dad? Is he wasn't bitter, and that was key. There's a lot, it's very easy to get angry, and the anger can poison your work. You know, we sit in the presence of the man who exemplifies the spirit of Br'er Abbott. Mm -hmm. I mean, Melvin Van Peebles is totally impossible if you approach the whole situation from logic and common sense. Melvin found a way to avoid logic, go around common sense, and still show up. It's not how many times you get knocked down that counts in life. It's how many times you get up. I had hoped these things would come to pass. I did not know in what fashion they would come to pass. I did not know they would start having things on Broadway or start this. The first thing you learn as a hunter is you never back a dangerous animal into a hole because he's got nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. After that, you're a rich man. I didn't know I couldn't do it. You know, like a bumblebee doesn't know he's aerodynamically unsound and he can't fly, but he doesn't know that, so he flies anyway. And cut. That's it. That's the end of our Melvin Van Peebles series. We did it. We did it. We, we, we're we here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I, I want to thank all my guests, Chris Steving, Amy Abugo-Angiri, Millie DeCirico, and, and just you wait. I've got a couple more special guests to help wrap up this series with some mind-blowing follow-up episodes, and I know you're going to love them. So those will be coming out the next few weeks, and then I'll come back to explain our upcoming summer programming. Ooh, I'm so excited. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you enjoyed our series on Melvin Van Peebles, you can subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Please hit us with those five stars and leave a review. Get a t-shirt if you're so inclined. I'd love it. Send me a picture. I'll post it on Instagram. As always, you can email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram, at behindtheslatepod, on TikTok, at behindtheslatepod pod and until next time that is a wrap thank you very much